Hello, and welcome to the Motivate Change podcast, inspiring heart disease survivors to live a longer, healthier life. I'm your host, Devin Brzezinski, a fellow heart disease survivor and occupational therapy student here to help you navigate a world of uncertainty after a cardiac event. Today's episode is part of our survivor series, and I'm so excited to have Stephanie Austin here on the podcast. Steph and I met when I was living in Philadelphia, and she was actually launching the first ever Faces of Heart campaign, where several of us shared our journeys with heart disease and stroke. So Stephanie, welcome. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? It's fabulous. Fabulous. It's so good to see you again. I know. It's good to see your see your face. I see you on Instagram and Facebook all the time, but to actually have a conversation, it's It's great. a nice reunion, right? And yes. it's nice that we're both still healthy and happy and able to be here and do this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, I mean, you are such a, an inspirational person in my life and I got so much out of volunteering because that's when I really started heavily volunteering with the American Heart Association was through you. Um, and I'm curious what your, I mean, you shared your story with me already, but <laughs> for our listeners, can you kind of take us back to that day and walk us through what happened? Sure, sure. So it's not something that anybody could have predicted um, or would have predicted. I was uh, 35 years old at the time. I have two children. They were four and seven at the time. And so I was, I had my life as a busy mom of, of young boys and uh, was PTA president. And my husband is an orthopedic surgeon. So his life was very busy. So with his work, so because he was starting his career. So I really managed the house, the children, the bills, and uh, and like I said, I was involved in their school. And then on top of that, um, I've always considered myself an athlete. And that was really how I defined myself before I became a mom. And so after having the boys, that was something I wanted to maintain. So at this point in my life, I was on three different soccer teams. I played with men. I played co-ed ultimate frisbee. I just picked up tennis. I lifted and and I was just busy, 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 didn't need a whole lot of sleep. And um, and that was kind of how I went about my life. And I thought everything was fine and dandy until one night um, in my sleep, I suffered a sudden cardiac arrest. And for those who are not quite sure what that means, um, I think by now a lot of people are familiar with what happened to Damar Hamlin on the football field. Mm -hmm. And that was a sudden cardiac arrest. Um, the difference was with mine, it happened while I was sleeping. And fortunately for me, my husband, who, as I said, is a surgeon, um, heard me take what would have been my final breath, um, being an agonal breath. And it was 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And so he heard that and he called my name and I didn't respond. And he called my name again and I still didn't respond. And when he rolled me over in bed, I was blue and my pupils were dilated. And um, thankfully he initiated the steps um, that would save my life, which were to call 911 and then to begin CPR. Wow. Yeah. And, and then I spent uh, almost two weeks in the hospital. Um, and that was a whole, uh, that was a journey in and of itself and uh, uh, left almost two weeks later with a defibrillator and pacemaker in my chest and, uh, and a new reality to contend mm -hmm. with. Absolutely. Um, well, thank goodness that your husband was there and he heard you. I mean, I'm not familiar. What does an agonal breath sound like? Yeah. So agonal breathing somewhat sounds like a snore or a snort. And, um, you know, being that we had been together since I was 18 and I was 35 at this point, he knows what I sound like when I sleep. And that <laughs> it was not a normal sound. And I think 
even though he knows what agonal breathing is, you never expect this to happen to the person lying next to you in bed, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, I was very lucky because um, he not only knew what to do, but um, he's good in a he's good in a crisis, right? Because he's a surgeon. So that's that was to my advantage. Um, but even with that, when my our our neighbors not long ago, maybe five years ago or so, told us that when he was when they were putting me into the ambulance and um, he was giving the children to the neighbors to to watch. Um, that he looked over at the medics and he yelled pulse and they yelled back no pulse because I still didn't have a pulse at that point. So um, there, I definitely still carry the effects of, of the lack of oxygen going to my brain for a few minutes and, um, and obviously the cardiovascular effects of that as well. But, but still I'm here and the stats are that 90% of people that experience a cardiac arrest outside of the hospital do not survive. So to survive and then to survive to the point where I can function as I do is is such a gift and, and is part of the reason you and I met because that's in part why, I, in large part, why I got involved with the American Heart Association and why I'm so passionate about um, learning CPR and education and awareness and knowledge is power and advocating and using our voices to help others and, and help ourselves. Yeah. I mean, there's so many what ifs in that scenario and there were so many different ways that it could have gone. Right. And, and thank goodness that your husband was there and he was, he knew CPR, he was able to perform it. He was, he called 911 right away and he did all of the things that he should have done in that situation. Um, so I'm curious, have you and your husband talked about like what that experience was like for him and like how he's kind of coped with it? Yeah, that's a great question. It's funny. I was, um, someone interviewed me not too long ago. And as I described it to her, I said, we both have our PTSD, but, and, and our journeys and our struggles, but they're very different because mine is the recovery because yeah. I don't remember my time in the hospital. I don't, I mean, I don't remember three full years of my life and, um, and my short-term memory is lousy. So for me, it was learning to deal with this new reality. And that was my struggle. And for him, the struggle was the trauma of seeing, you know, your wife, the mother of your children, your best friend dying in front of you, um, feeling that responsibility. And then when I went to the hospital and he was, you know, following the ambulance, just the uncertainty, because I didn't even wake up until the next day. And during that time, he was asked to get my, um, live, asked if I had a living will. Um, he was told that I might not survive. He was told if I did survive, I may not be able to speak. I may not, you know, I, I may end up in a, um, an assisted living facility because I would be unable to care for myself. Um, and the stress of all of that took a a very significant toll on him. And, and even when I did wake up, I was slurring and stuttering. I didn't know him. I didn't recognize my children. Um, you know, they, they were, so there was quite a decent deal of time where we didn't know how I was going to recover from this. And I think it was, I was fortunate that I was in really good shape when this happened. I think that contributes to my, um, my recovery, but um, he and I both ended up, it, it took a few months, but we both ended up seeking therapy and I went to therapy and he went to his therapist I went to my therapist and then together we went to his therapist because we each have our own individual journeys with this that we needed to work out for ourselves. But then of course we have this life together Mm -hmm. and our journeys um, impact one another. So then we had to have those discussions as well. And um, that definitely took some time and was not something that he initially thought he needed and needed a little but, you know, which is not uncommon. I think men often are a little less 
inclined to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it really became apparent that, um, you know, our marriage was struggling because he uh, he later realized that he was really afraid that I was going to die again. Mm-hmm. And still, even though I had survived, like, what if that happens again? Um, right. Like no one went, you know, he would go on call after the event and sleep in the hospital overnight or be in the hospital overnight. And people would come and stay with me. No one wanted that job. No one wanted to sit with me. And I, how could anybody relax and sleep when, you know, they were afraid of what could happen again? So, um, yeah, so it was, I, it's a great question because it certainly doesn't just affect the patient. It affects everyone around the patient. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, it's a topic that I don't know if I've brought up with my patients enough because when they come into cardiac rehab, we talk a lot about mental health and the hesitations of either like changing any aspect of their, their life right now, whether that's being more physically fit, taking care of their, um, their health as far as eating goes, right. improving their sleep quality, but making connections with other people and sharing their stories is a huge part of that. And that's why I wanted to have this survivor series on the podcast too, because no one should feel like they're alone. But like when you're looking at the mental health aspect of it, it really has affected everyone in your family and it affects everyone differently and everyone's going to respond differently. And so a coping mechanism that might work for me and might not necessarily work for you and to recognize that and to keep moving forward despite those differences. Absolutely. And I think you brought up a good point too, that um, to not isolate oneself in, in, in during one's recovery is so huge. So to, to link yourself to other people in whatever way that has to be, whether that is committing to a phone call or to a walk or to playing uh, cards, or to having a meal together. It keeps you engaged. It keeps you connected. It gets you out of your own head because it's very hard, um, you know, as a survivor, especially when it's a cardiac event, because you can be reminded of it with every beat of your heart, right? Mm-hmm. And so you, it, it's, it's a constant. It's not something from which that you're going to shake. It's always going to be with you. And so to learn how to cope with that, I think I think um, people have to recognize to give yourself some grace. It doesn't, it's not gonna happen overnight. It's a process. And when I meet new survivors, I tell them all the time, this is a marathon, it is not a sprint. I would tell you I am, this year I am 15 years from my cardiac arrest. And it is a roller coaster ride. There are still days I get really, really emotional about it. Watching what happened to Damar Hamlin, I was a mess. Oh, yeah. I didn't talk to anybody the next day. And I don't even go two hours without talking to somebody because <laughs> I love to talk. And so for me to go a whole day, I was like, I'm just, I, that was difficult because I was sitting there just, imagining what it must have been like for my loved ones when Mm. it happened to me and wondering like so anxious and concerned about how he was going to recover and wanting to know all the gross details as I do for my story and so it's um I think I, I I don't know that everybody appreciates you know change is hard obviously but if you link yourself to other people and allow yourself to be vulnerable with them um, because they can't understand. They, 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 you can't expect them to. How would they, unless they've been through the same thing? So they will only know if you tell them, and they can mm-hmm. only help you if you tell them you need the help and if you ask for the help. And people, and I know what you and I have talked about this before. People are good. Most people want to do good. And if these people are in your life, then it's because they care about you. So let them help you because that's what they want to do. And you probably need it anyway. So, uh, you know, you can't, you got to get rid of any pride or anything in that regard. And because ultimately the goal is to be healthier 
And in order to do that, it's just infinitely easier with a village of people helping you. Yeah, that is so true. It's a really good reminder. Yeah. When you were in the hospital, were you on a ventilator? I was initially. Yes. Okay. Yes, for sure. Um, yeah, I was in heart failure. So my, my ejection fraction, which, um, are you, you're familiar with ejection fraction? So yeah. mine was in the single digits. So, um, uh, it, it was pretty, it was pretty bad. I, I went from sleeping about five hours a night to sleeping 18 hours a day. Um, wow. when I came out of the hospital and that was two weeks after my hospital stay. And that was for months. I slept like that. I mean, it was, I couldn't even walk a block when I left the hospital. So it was, um, it, it was a significant change. And I would have to say that one of the good things about that is that, uh, and I think you mentioned earlier, you know, you have to learn how to adjust uh, your exercise and healthy eating, and you're trying to sleep better and trying to adjust. And one of the pieces there is to reduce stress. And because stress has such a negative impact on one's health. And um, I would jokingly say when you have something that can kill you, and I was really stressed when my event happened, and I'm, I know that. Um, and I also have ulcerative colitis, which is also very sensitive to stress. Mm. Um, so when I will go into arrhythmias and have significant GI distress when I am too stressed. There's nothing like those reminders to teach you how to get stress under control. So hmm. I would say very hard to stress me out now. Like once you die, what the hell is there to stress about? Like this what really matters? What really matters? I could count on one hand mm -hmm. and everything else is, is, topping, you know, is, is minutiae, either life's minutiae or icing on the cake. And so it doesn't deserve my attention. And when I was recovering, I didn't have the energy to give it the attention anyway. Like that's very true too. It, and right. And so in, in some way that was good be in, in that it forced me to appreciate that because when I first came out of the hospital, I only had the energy to keep myself afloat. That was it. I did not have any extra energy to spend on my husband, even on my children, on anything. Just staying alive was all I could manage. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, as I started to get energy back, it was like this energy, this is so precious, this, this, this gift I have now at this second life. So what am I giving it to? Well, I'm going to dole it out to the things that are most important. So now all of a sudden, you have to appreciate what really matters because that's all you have the energy for. And now that I am, I lead more of a normal lifestyle now. And I, although I do sleep like eight hours now, as opposed <laughs> to my five and my past, um, I, I just, I, I've maintained that mental attitude that I'm not giving energy to things that don't deserve my energy. So is there anything specific that you do when you notice that you're starting to get stressed? Like, do you use any breathing techniques or like, I don't know, walk me through. So it's funny. I tried um, breathing techniques and meditation for a while and, and mm -hmm. I have definitely done it. I would say, I think it, I had to find something that the one that worked for me because some I would go on and they'd say, listen to your heartbeat. And I'm like, my heartbeat's irregular. Like that's not calming for me. <laughs> so, Fair though. Yeah, <laughs> it is. I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. So then it just became, you know, I found one that worked for me that, um, that really was just more going blank and just calming, uh, myself. Mm -hmm. And, but I did, you know, I don't, I don't want to dissuade anybody from doing it. But I want to say, don't worry if the first thing you try doesn't work, because I mean, how many times yeah. in life does that happen anyway in anything, right? Mm -hmm. So um, give yourself time to find the thing that works. And then what I started to do was give myself, and this was huge for me, give myself the grace that I would give and do give to everybody else in my life. But for whatever reason don't give to myself. Mm -hmm. And 
that revelation came from my therapist. It was the single most important thing my therapist said to me is I went in and I said to her, listen, I'm feeling so guilty. I, I feel like I'm not the mother or the wife or the friend that I, that I should be, that I need to be, that I used to be. And she said, is anyone saying anything to make you feel guilty? And I said, oh God, no, like my, everybody has been so supportive. Everybody's been fabulous. At which point she said, oh, so you're doing it to yourself. Yeah. Said, oh my God, I'm such a moron. And I'm so logical that that really pissed me off because <laughs> that I, I, I should have known better. And so then it was, okay, you know what? I can't answer every email on that day before I go to bed. I used to. Now mm -hmm. I, I can't because I need, I'm tired and I need to go to sleep. And if, if, if anything, if, if I don't get the sleep and then I'm stressed and then everything else, you know, rolls down the hill badly. So I, I would never get upset if somebody didn't respond the same exact day. I would, I, especially if they had been through what I had been through. But mm. here I was expecting this Herculean effort out of myself when I would never do that to somebody else in my position. That's, it's, it sounds simple. It is not simple. And no, no, no it's not. No, because I you're think that's profound. Habit of decades, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just knowing you, I know that you hold yourself to a high standard and so that like you internalize it and you want to be the best version of yourself at all times. Yes. So. Yes. And I had to realize that this is the best version of myself right now, especially mm -hmm. at that time when I needed a little more, I needed a little more of everything. I need a little more patience. I need a little more sleep. I need a little more love. I need a little more forgiveness, uh, understanding mm -hmm. all of it. And, and I would say now I just carry those lessons with me and in a weird way. And I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's like the best thing that could have happened to me because had I not had the cardiac arrest, I wouldn't be living my life as I currently am. And the way I'm living my life now is a gift. I wish I could give to everybody mm -hmm. because like I said, really hard to stress me out now because I know what matters. And for people who, you know, you, you know, we all meet those people that just don't fit in our lives, right? It just like they bring, they, they don't enhance my life enough. They're the energy vampires is what I exactly, call them. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So now it's like, I have enough friends, like bye-bye energy vampire. Like I, I, <laughs> I, I just don't, it's not, it's not like, I don't want you in my life. I can't have you in my life. It's not good for me. It's not healthy for me. Mm -hmm. And I have a family that depends on me and I have a life that is precious. I've been given this second chance. I'm not screwing with it by giving my energy to things that aren't deserving of my energy. I love it. I think, and I hope that you've given yourself enough credit for what you just said, because that's huge to take that step and, and maybe cut off relationships that no, were no longer serving you and just really honoring what you have been through. Um, looking at from a, I don't know if, if, um, you mentioned or not, but did they ever conclude like why you had the cardiac arrest? Was it mainly due to stress? Because it seems like you had, you were really active. You were eating pretty well, like besides sleep and stress. I feel like those are two common things. Yes. I, yes. Uh, I mean, no one can convince me that stress did not play a role in that in part, because since the event, I know when, uh, for example, when one of those um, vampires, <laughs> One, one of the toxic people, when I knew I was going to see that person on one specific weekend, I I went into VTAC three times that week and I had a colitis attack that week. And I was like, okay, like I can't, that was shortly before I cut them back out. Yeah. I mean, they had been in my life. I was stressed about that relationship, had the cardiac arrest after an argument with that person that same weekend. And then let them back into my life because other people's expectations were that that's what I should do. And I was trying to go with the flow. 
and then had to cut that, cut, let them loose. And not everyone understood it. And that was fine. I mean, it's unfortunate, but it, it is what it is because I know that it was the right decision for me. Yeah. But to answer your question, so I know that that was a fact. I know that that was a factor in my heart. Not that that can ever be proved. But the one thing I will say, it goes to the importance of knowing one's family history is that, and I I swear to you that this story is true, but it will sound insane. I was um, at a spa four, five hours from my home one weekend. And I went in to get a massage. At, did I ever tell you this story, Devin? I don't think so, no. And I walk into the room for the massage and the woman says to me, you have a guardian angel. She says, I can see colors and auras and I can tell you have a guardian angel. And this is, this is maybe a year and a half after the cardiac arrest. Okay. And I thought, okay, cause you know, I really shouldn't be here and I am here. So I could buy that. Someone's but I was looking up. Yes. Someone's looking yes, out for me. Exactly. <laughs> and I don't want to upset them. So let's say yes. Okay. And, um, but I didn't tell her anything of my history. And she did the massage. And after the massage, she says to me, during your, I've never heard voices in my life before. During your massage, all I could hear were the names Margaret and Grace, Margaret and Grace, Margaret and Grace. Do those names mean anything to you? Because now that I've told you, they've stopped. So I think they're your guardian angels. Hmm. I said, Margaret was my grandmom's name. I don't know who Grace is. She said, well, they're your guardian angels. And if you ever kind of walk in a room, your hair kind of stands up on end, they're, they're with you. I said, wow. okay. So I called my brother to tell him the story. He called my mother. My mother called me and said, oh my God, Steffi, Grace was your grandmom's sister. She died suddenly in her thirties. All they ever told me was she died of a broken heart because my mom was young when my great aunt died. And um, at which point I was like, oh, so this explains the genetic component that everyone insisted I must have because we've not we've not yet found a gene, hmm. but that kind of reinforced, well, there's probably a genetic component. And and then so that was maybe 13 years ago. And then about three or four years, three years ago, a little more than three years ago. Um, my son developed cardiomyopathy, my older son, who he's now 22. And my boys, after my event, my boys were checked every three years. And they were always fine, 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 until the oldest one got to be a freshman in college and he went for his check. And all of a sudden he presented with cardiomyopathy. So we got him a defibrillator and a pacemaker as well, because as we said, the chances for survival of something like this are not in your favor. Mm -hmm. And um, clearly we don't have a full understanding of why, because he is very fit and he's super active. Yeah. And seemingly oh healthy. Gosh. And I did, I did not know that. Thank yeah. you for sharing. Um, wow. Well, yeah. So now, so we story do, just like gave me goosebumps. <laughs> oh, oh, it's, and, and Devin, she is the, she was the first last year. I walked into a room for laser hair removal for my legs. <laughs> and that woman said to me upon within 30 seconds, you have guardian angels. She's like, you wow. have so much energy coming off of you. She's like, and I see angels as colors. And of course my color was red, which of course I was like, of course <laughs> it's red. Cause everything I do is hearts red. Yeah. Very and, fitting. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she has subsequently told me other things, but I, wow. I um, it does. I do like to think that I survived for a reason and, and that I am fulfilling that reason mm -hmm. by um, volunteering with the Heart Association, by sharing my story, by advocating um, and educating and, um, and hopefully bringing survivors together and mm -hmm. so that they have a nice network of others who will listen and understand and appreciate um, the uniqueness of especially of being a younger female survivor. Yeah. I feel like that's, it was, um, a big stereotype or I guess stigma that, you know, if you're young, you're fine, you're healthy. And that's not always the case. Heart, heart disease can affect anyone, any age, anytime, anywhere. Yes. And you are a huge 
advocate and super survivor um, that shares your story with the AHA and beyond. Um, you're even hosting a CPR class tonight. I am. I am. I got an AED so I can, well, so I can help somebody if God forbid there is ever a need. And, and also so I can train um, or have some, have people come to my house to learn how to use an AED and how to perform CPR because most of the time when bystander CPR is used, I think it's 74% of the time it is in the home. So, um, you know, it's, it's not as one might think that it would, you know, you just be walking down the street and something will happen. And although that, that could happen, most of the time it's going to be somebody, you know, and I can think of few things that would be worse than watching someone that you care for dying and mm-hmm. not and not knowing what to do, knowing that there may be something you could do and you didn't feel comfortable doing it or didn't know what to do. And hands only, I mean, CPR has never been easier because now you don't have to do the mouth to mouth. You can do hands only. So yeah. it's really two steps. Call 911, push hard and fast in the middle of the chest. Yeah. That's really it. And, but people get, as you, as I'm sure, you know, people get nervous. Am I going to break a rib? Am I going to hurt them? And I say to people all the time, you can't make them more dead. If they need CPR, they're dying. Mm -hmm. Uh, The rib is like the last thing you should worry about. Exactly. Like bring it on, break a rib, go for it, you know? And an AED isn't going to deliver a shock to somebody if they're not shockable. So it it tells you, it it literally says shock needed. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So these are the things that I'm, I want more and more people to learn. So I have people from my tennis team coming tonight. I have people that I've known since my kids were in preschool coming tonight. I have all like friends from all sorts of, I have a survivor coming tonight whom I've never met that someone connected to me and I was supposed to meet her a few a month or two ago and I had COVID and couldn't meet her. And so we've been playing tag and I told her I was having this. So she's coming tonight. And oh, she also wonderful. survived a cardiac arrest while running, while jogging with a friend. Oh my gosh. And I guess mm-hmm. her friend had to perform CPR on her then. Yes. Yes. Oh, so, I mean, I'm in healthcare and I'm obviously CPR certified, but it's still like, I will admit it still terrifies me to have to administer CPR to somebody. And I went to the uh, Richmond heart luncheon a few weeks ago, and they had a bunch of um, CPR stations set up that you could learn. And I was like, you know, I might as well refresh my memory. My, my certification's coming up this summer. So I went over to one of the the police officers that was there and, and I was practicing a little bit and I was like, oh, this is harder than I remembered it being because it's one of those things that you have to continue practicing and and really refine your skills because it, it you can almost like well at least on the dummy you could hear and like feel a little like pop yeah and so that I know that it's um that's important because you need to be pushing a certain like, yes depth. I think it's two inches in depth about mm-hmm. And, and to the, uh, hundred to 120 beats per minute. So mm-hmm. to the beat of like staying alive yeah. and I, the, the times I've done it and I'll be doing it again tonight to refresh my memory as well. But the times I've done it, um, I am sweating. So like, oh. Oh, I yeah. ha- so I have this jacket on, but I'm sleeveless under here because I know I'm going to be schwitzing tonight when I'm doing <laughs> my, <laughs> my CPR. So, and which is fine, but, um, yeah, it is not, it, it's, it's simple, but it's not easy, but I tell people all the time, um, you're going to have, if you were in that situation and I, you know, and I would say, God forbid, if you're in that situation, except if you're in that situation, you are somebody's lifesaver. So that's important. That's huge. Mm-hmm. You will have so much adrenaline going that you will be fine. And yeah. hopefully there will be other people there. So you can say, you call 911 and you go find an AED and you stay here with me because I'm going to do CPR. And when I t- tuck her out, you're jumping in. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. First of all, women are much less likely to 
be given CPR. Um, sadly, because of our tatas, which is just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So um, it is something that increases survival two to three times. Hands-only CPR increases survival two to three times. With the survival rate in our country being just 10%, that is not the way it needs to be. That It is not that way in every country. It is not even that way. That's our national average. But there are cities in our country who have um, initiated programs to um, educate more of its more of their communities on CPR awareness and readiness, and um, their survival rates have jumped uh, significantly as a result. So um, I don't think it's something we need to accept. I, I know there is a national campaign right now. Um, a challenge from Damar Hamlin um, as a result of what happened to him on Monday Night Football um, to have everybody learn CPR. Um, it is, there are videos that can teach you how to do it. As I said earlier, it really is just two steps. If, if you know nothing else, you call 911 and push hard and fast in the center of the chest. But you can order a kit from the American Heart Association that will give you an inflatable dummy. It'll give you a video. So it will teach you how to do it. Um, there are even ones for babies. Um, you can sign up to take a class. Um, I would just encourage anybody that's listening um, to consider getting a kit like this. And at your next family get together, at your next holiday, at Thanksgiving, at 4th of July, at Christmas, bring the dummy, have it sitting out, tell everyone, because that, as you know, Devin and, and referenced earlier, it clicks when you're doing it appropriately. Yeah. It's something that you create that muscle memory in your body so that your body knows how to do it and it will kick in. Um, and it is something that I'm giving as a gift to all of my friends this year, since it is my 15th anniversary of my cardiac arrest um, for everybody's birthday this year, I'm gifting them a CPR kit and encouraging them to make sure their family knows it and bring it with them when they're with their loved ones or host your own CPR party. Mm -hmm. We, I, I call it a cocktail party for a reason. CPR. And uh, <laughs> I so, love that. Isn't that great? Yeah. So my my neighbor and good friend um, and I came up with that and hosted our first one a few years ago. So I tell people, you come, I'll give you wine, I'll give you food, but you have to learn CPR. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're doing tonight. That's perfect. I feel like in general, everyone should have more CPR and opportunities to practice because even if you just get certified through the AHA, I don't, I personally don't feel like that's enough. Like I, I feel like we should continuously being, being proactive. And like you said, it's muscle memory. So it's like, yes. if you get into that position, unless you're in a, a, a high uh, stress or high um, population environment that, that you're exposed to the potential of someone having a cardiac arrest in front of you, you're not going to, to be there. So right. Making right. sure that you're you're able to practice when exactly the time and comes, you don't you're have ready. to be certified to save somebody's life. You just yeah. have to have the confidence to do what needs to be done. That's really what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. And um, and you can watch videos online to teach you how to do it. So if nothing else. Do that and encourage the people around you to do that because the person you, they, they might use it on might be you mm -hmm. and the person you might use it on might be them. Yeah. So I, I had people ask me today, is it only women coming tonight? I was like, are you kidding? Like bring your husbands. Like, don't you want to be saved? I mean, it's one thing if you can save them, but you need them to be able to reciprocate, you know? Right. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah. It's so mm -hmm. I, I'm a, I'm a big, big fan of learning. Well, obviously, since that was the first step in saving my life, I'm a big fan of it. So, <laughs> um, and and also um, black, brown and Latino communities, their survival rates are even worse. So um, underserved, underprivileged populations um, struggle with this quite a bit. So 
Um, I'm a big fan also of bringing it to your religious institution. We're, we're going to be doing this. I'm Jewish. So we're going to be doing a CPR training at our synagogue, not long. Um, but if you're a member of a church, consider talking to the, the leaders in your church about having a CPR training at your church. You know, that's that's a a great idea. It's a perfect place to have it. You know, we, and encourage these places that you frequent a lot, like your churches or like restaurants or athletic facilities to have AEDs around as well, because Mm -hmm. that is also needed in, in these situations, CPR and an AED. And, um, I bought, I bought a refurbished one for $700 the other day. And while that's not nothing, um, I, you know, I have it to spend and I, I think it's a worthwhile investment because Mm -hmm. if, if, if I ever, ever use it, I will never question having purchased it. Right. Yeah. Then it saves a life. So then it was worth it. Um, and places that have a lot of people, um, like churches or, tennis facilities or basketball grounds, um, gyms, they should all have AEDs. And not only that, they should know where they are, the people that work there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so that should be a part of training and any yes, facility that you go into. A hundred percent. And I know the American Heart Association works with organizations to develop emergency response plans mm-hmm. so that if something happens, there's a plan and everyone knows what to do. I mean, that's what happened with DeMar Hamlin that night on Monday night football. There was a plan in place. Everyone knew what their job was. Everyone knew what to do. And that young man survived. And that's not by chance. That's because people were there to do CPR. There was an AED present. Everyone knew their job and executed their job. And that man survived. Mm -hmm. And again, that he's in the 10%. He's the one in 10. So it's, you know, it's important. I appreciate you letting me say that. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Um, I do have another question about, we haven't really touched on as far as your story goes with your memory Mm. and what that process was like to not remember things. And then what strategies you use to try to compensate for any short-term memory loss, but also did you have cardiac rehab? I did not have cardiac rehab. And it's funny that you ask because I was just talking to a cardiologist. I had dinner with a cardiologist last night and I said to her, did they have cardiac rehab when I went through my event? And she said, yeah, but she said, you know, my guess is that you were a 35 year old female with a six pack and, (laughs) you know, for abs and they you know, you didn't fit the profile. So they probably just didn't even think of it for you. And cause I never, I never went. Um, so it's funny cause this cork board behind me with pieces <laughs> of ebony, some are drawings and things from my, my friend's children and whatnot, but some of them are important things that I can't forget that I know that I will forget. So mm-hmm. important things go on the cork board. Um, Everything goes into my schedule. Everything, everything shy of going to the bathroom is in my calendar. <laughs> so, um, because I know that I am prone to forgetting a lot of things mm-hmm. and I'm very honest with it. And in fact, it's interesting, you know, when you talked about the difference between my husband and me. And so for me talking about it, um, was a lot of how I processed it and how I came to terms with it and how I took some power away from it because Mm -hmm. I felt like it, it took my, to me, it felt like it took so much from me. It took away my identity, which I identified as an athlete. And then I couldn't walk a block. It took away my memory. Um, it took away my independence. Um, it took a lot. It took, not only did it take a lot, it took a lot of things that I greatly valued. Um, and so for me talking about it was a way of taking away, demystifying it, right. And taking away its power to some degree. So I love talking about it. My husband hates talking about it because (laughs) it reminds him 
of this very fragile, horribly upsetting time um, that he would rather not ever think of again. And so when there was a time when he would say to me, you know, why are you telling someone that we've just met, you know, about your issue, your, your memory problem or whatever? And I would say, because I know that I'm not stupid and it will make, it makes me feel a little stupid if they were Mm -hmm. to say something and then I meet them again. And I don't remember anything that they said to me. I don't want them to think I'm a moron. I'm not a moron. I'm actually fairly intelligent, but I've got brain damage from a cardiac arrest. So I'm just putting it out there. And, um, (laughs) and I think it bothered him initially in part because it just reminded him of my fragility and, um, and a time that he'd rather not go back to, you Mm -hmm. know? And um, I mean, there were times, there were a a couple years, I want to say it was almost two years where I was like, where, are my pajama bottoms that go with this pajama top. And, <laughs> and and I was missing pieces of pajamas. And he said the night, of, and I eventually I said something to him and he said, the night of the cardiac arrest, you were wearing mismatched pajamas and we had to mm. cut them off of you. So they're gone. And like, I want to know every gross detail of that day. Um, and he does not want to talk about any of it. So we, you know, we've come you know, it's been 15 years. So we've right. come to terms with that. And over the years we've discussed it, but we've also had to um, develop systems where like, I tell everyone everything because I don't trust myself to remember anything. So this way, the more mm-hmm. people I tell, the more likely someone is to remind me of something, you know, and my friends know, like in the days when I was, we were doing carpools, Like they would very gently send me a reminder, like instead of saying, hey, don't forget to pick up the kids from Hebrew school today, it Mm -hmm. would say, thank you so much for getting the kids today. Something like that. It was very sensitive. It was very kind. And I would reply, thank you. I appreciate the reminder (laughs) because I know what they're doing, but, (laughs) you know, they don't want to upset me and it's not upsetting. It is what it is. That's, you know. I, it's it's like trying to hide the scar. Like now it's a badge of honor. For a while, I wanted to hide it. Now I'm like, look what I survived. Mm-hmm. I survived something that kills 90% of people. That's something to be proud of. Yeah. And not that I'm proud that I have memory problems, but I am proud that I am able to do as much as I am despite my memory problems. Like I'm mm-hmm. good with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, you, I, 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 I'm not going to curse, but own your crap right? So (laughs) own your crap. That's part of my crap. And it's, it's not the worst thing in the world. There's, we all have our limitations. And when you suffer a cardiac event, you're going to have some things either you can't do like you used to, maybe you can't do it at all. Um, Maybe you, um, maybe you don't, you don't feel the same inside Mm -hmm. that, these are all surmountable. These are not insurmountable and it doesn't happen overnight. And that's where you have to give yourself grace and time. And when you need help, ask for help and don't be too proud to do that. And it's such a gift to be able to, I say it all the time, like Bob and weave, Bob and weave, like (laughs) pivot, pivot, (laughs) because you know, at first I couldn't play soccer. Okay. So I'm going to play tennis. Well, then it was, oh, well, you can't play singles tennis because now you have had heat exhaustion this one time playing singles. So now mm. you can only play doubles. Okay, pivot. Now I'm going to play doubles. Oh, wait, no, but you can't play doubles outside in an untimed match because when your electrolytes go off, you get more arrhythmias. Okay, pivot. Now I'm playing doubles <laughs> indoor timed matches, but I'm finding things. And then and then I ruptured my Achilles last year, right? Which is a terrible injury. I don't recommend it. It's painful <laughs> as all get out. And, and it's a long recovery, like, mm-hmm. like 10 months before I could get back on a tennis court again. And with a lot of therapy, 10 months. And um, so in that 10 months, I now I can't play any sports. And I that's my thing. And that and so now I'm gaining weight, I, I can't compete. I mean, so 
I started playing canasta and mahjong all the time because I wanted to still compete in something. <laughs> and I and, and I wanted to still have that connection with people because when I play tennis, I see friends, I play in leagues and whatnot. Having that skill that you get after suffering any kind of setback in life, it doesn't have to strictly be a, car, a cardiac event or a health event, but any setback, learning to adjust and adapt and grow that is that is a skill that will benefit you the rest of your life yeah. and and it's part of the reason i say i'm kind of glad i i'm saying i'm glad i had the cardiac arrest is a little odd but uh, my life is better i live my life better now and in a healthier way than i did 15 years ago and that is because of the lessons learned from the mm -hmm. cardiac arrest yeah you were able to really self reflect at that point and and figure out what was actually important in life and what was worth stressing over versus not. So right. yeah. and what you're going to accept, mm -hmm. you can't, you can't fight everything. Some things, they are what they are. My heart is not as strong as I would like it to be. That sucks. It's not the end of the world. I'm still here. And that doesn't mean you can't have your pity party now and again. And it doesn't mean that there aren't days that I have cried or been like, what the hell? Like, this sure. is awful. Of course, we all have those days. The mm -hmm. point is not to stay there, is to, to find the things that make you strong, that make you feel proud, that you feel give you value. And for me, you know, that was sports. So once I was able to do again, I started, I mean, I overdid it. In hindsight, I know I overdid it. But I overcompensated and started playing tennis like all the time because I mm -hmm. wanted to get really, really good because and I'm athletic. So if I do something with sports over and over, like I'll get decent at it. Yeah. And um, but I need I know now I needed that for a confidence boost. That's what it did for me, you know, and that's what volunteering for the American Heart Association did for me. It made mm -hmm. me feel like I was giving back in some way. It made me feel strong. It gave me a purpose. You know, I, I couldn't hold a regular job or I didn't, I didn't feel, and I still don't feel, I feel like that would be hard for me because of my memory issues um, to, to learn new tasks. But what can I do? I can share my story. I can do public speaking. I can do fundraising. Mm -hmm. I can educate people. I can bring together survivors. There's a, so I'm not going to focus on the stuff I can't do. I'm going to focus on the stuff I can do. And after having an event like that, where you feel like you've lost so much, it's so vital to find the things that make you feel strong and valuable and unique and powerful mm -hmm. and that's where you put your energy. And, and in fact, I would show you, but I know this is a podcast that so people can't see. I must have <laughs> like 15 wonder women, wonder woman things up on my shelf up here. I have a whole <laughs> shelf. That's all wonder woman that people have given me oh. because I like to think that I'm wonder woman. And um, you are wonder woman, you know, it's such a silly little thing, but it makes me happy. So I yeah. surround myself with things that make me happy. I think that's such a great message because you not only pivoted multiple times in, in your life since this has happened to you, but now you've created like this platform for yourself to give back to others, to continue to share your story and your message. And it's meaningful to you. And maybe like, like you were talking about, job wise and learning new skills is difficult, but it's, that doesn't mean that you don't have a future or it doesn't mean that you, you don't have like things that you're passionate about and you can still, um, find I, your purpose. Yeah. Your purpose. That's exactly what I was looking for. So if anything, I think that helped you find your purpose even more. So I, I could not agree more. I say it all the time when I'm advocating and, and doing things like this, like this is my purpose and my passion mm -hmm. and, and it, and that's a gift and I'll mm -hmm. take it and yeah. I will take it. And I'd like to think that that's why I survived was to do this. And, um, and so to be able to meet people like you and other survivors and then watch them not only survive, but thrive yeah. as you have, 
I mean, my God, what a gift is that? Mm-hmm. What a gift is that? And and you want to share that because you want other people that are going through it to know that they can be the same exact way, right? And mm-hmm. it helps when you find others that have experienced it because it can be very isolating feeling if, you know, the network, you know, no one in my network had had a cardiac arrest. Now mm-hmm. I know, a I know way too many people than I should know that have had <laughs> cardiac arrest, but it's, uh, but you know, but that's great because now when someone else hears of someone having one, they connect them with me and mm-hmm. then I can connect them to other people too. Yeah. And that's, you got to surround yourself with your people. You couldn't have said it better. Mm. I was going to ask for like one piece of advice that you would give to somebody that's maybe has just recently had um, a cardiac arrest or is going through um, something. And, but I feel like you've, you've pretty much covered everything. <laughs> I've, well, I am 15 years out. So I've, I've, I've gone around the, gone around the sun a few times now. It's, um, I it, be patient with yourself. Any people that are new, be patient with yourself. It is, it is a ride. I didn't wake up with this attitude on day one. You know, it yeah. took, it took several years. And, and so I sharing in the hopes that it provides a little bit of insight of what can, what can be for you too. And, um, and you have more power than you think you do. Mm-hmm. Don't, you know, you control your destiny to a large degree. So as much as there are things that you cannot control and what happened to you is one of them, what you do with that now, that's on you. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, listen, reach out to find me, find Devin. We will, we will help you with it because it is, it's as much as it's um, frustrating and annoying, you are part of this miraculous group of people now and you are not alone. And then there are good things ahead. You just got to be open to them. Yep. Yeah. Where, speaking of where can people find you? Oh my goodness. So if people were to look up, I have it right here, actually. If people were to look up um, AHA for American Heart Association, AHA faces of heart dot heart dot org. That is my, that is my campaign. Mm-hmm. So I am there. Stephanie Austin is my name. I'm on Facebook and I'm on, um, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And I love connecting with other survivors. So that is, that is my pure joy. So anybody that wants to reach out, please do please track me down. Mm -hmm. I will put all of your contact info in the show notes and the faces of heart campaign. Are you still recruiting for that? I am. I think we have 11 nominees for this year. Oh, okay. And so do they have to be in the Philly area? So for our Faces of Heart campaign, they do. Um, but my hope is that the Faces of Heart campaign is going to spread to other um, markets and other networks around the country. So um, having said that, um, for for the campaign, they need to be part, uh, I mean, in the Philadelphia area. But if someone is looking to network with other survivors, no, you do not, because we live in this lovely technological time. Mm-hmm where we can zoom and FaceTime and call and email. So um, I would encourage people to do that. I, there's also like, um, you know, there's groups on social media that uh-huh. can be helpful too. I know there's a sudden cardiac arrest um, forum that I'm a part of oh. on social media and okay. people throw out, you know, questions and offer advice and it's a, it's nice. And it, you know, Like I said, it can be very isolating feeling. You have to make an effort to find your people, but they are out there. So, um, and I would imagine a lot of hospital systems probably have networks as well. So Mm -hmm. it's worth looking into that too. Yes. So just to recap, if you are in the Philly area and you know of someone or you are yourself a survivor and you want to be in the Spaces of Heart campaign, please reach out to Stephanie about it. 
Um, and if you are interested in, if you're in another state and you are interested in starting your own Faces of Heart campaign, still reach out because we will get you hooked up. <laughs> yes, 100%. I, I will find the people for you. I'm a decent networker. I know lots of people. So <laughs> we'll make it happen. Yes, you do. Yes. Awesome. That's what happens when you like to talk. <laughs> you are a social butterfly. I'll give you that. I try. I try. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on and being willing to share your story. I know you're going to help tons of people. That is that from your lips to the big guy's ears. I hope so. <laughs> let us hope anything you ever need. You let me know. All right. Will do. Thanks. Take Steph. good care of you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.